And we're going to talk tonight about this subject, fallacies and facts, how to avoid drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, by that, we're basically saying that we're going to tonight do what we can through God's power to become wise as serpents. When Jesus told us to become wise as serpents and harmless as doves, often as Christians we want to focus on being harmless as a dove. But what we're going to do here is we're going to look at a short introduction video on what many of us as Christians, even if people don't say this to your face, they may think it behind your back that we as Christians are intolerant. How many of you have ever heard that charge leveled against a Christian before? Christians are intolerant. So we're going to look at um, Greg Kukul. We're actually going to go through some of his stuff next week. It's very helpful. And he's going to introduce this. Then we're going to talk about it and then walk through our outline. Our special guest is Greg Kokel, who is a renowned author and writer, and it's just a privilege to have him on our program this week. And Greg, just good to be with you. Thank you, Bobby. We have a, a question that we want to ask you. We know that you are passionate about seeing Christians articulate and defend their faith to this culture. Oftentimes, as we seek to defend our faith, we're told that we're intolerant. Can you just help us in a nutshell know how we can answer people who say that we're intolerant as Christians? Well, my approach is, is to use questions whenever I can, um, not only to gain information, but also in maneuvering conversations. It also takes the pressure off of me when I ask the question. In that case, when somebody calls me intolerant, I know something that's going on here that they don't know. Uh, they think I'm intolerant because I think I'm right. But they think they're right, too. Everybody who believes something thinks they're right but only one side is getting called a name. So now that I have this awareness, this knowledge in my head about what's going on, I use a question to uncover that. So when they say, well, you're intolerant, Coco, I say, well, what do you mean by that? Now I want them to give me a definition because I know once they give me a definition that they're gonna fall under the definition too, okay? They say, well, you think you're right. Well, I do think I'm right, but let me ask you the question, do you think you're right? I mean, you're opposing me, obviously. Do you think your views are right? He's, what's he going to say? He can't say, I think all my beliefs are wrong. Of course he thinks he's right. Why is it then, I ask, that when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant, but when you think you're right, you're just right? What am I missing here? Now, this is not meant to be like a total gotcha. I mean, it is a gotcha in a certain way, but it's meant not to embarrass the other person. It's meant to help that person see that all he's doing is calling me a name. Instead of addressing the issue, he's attacking my character. You know, uh, It'd be the same thing as if you called me ugly or something. It doesn't get us anywhere, and I want him to see that. Um, he's, he's got ideas that he thinks he are right. I have ideas I think that are right. Why don't we talk about who's right, rather than just firing uh, character challenges at each other. That's the way I would go about dealing with that issue. Thank you so much, Greg. For more information on Greg's ministry, go to Stand to Reason at str.org, where you'll find a thousand pages of information that can help equip you in your apologetics. When someone says, you as a Christian are intolerant, what did Greg Kukul say to ask? What did I mean by that? Yeah, what, what do you mean by that? 
You see, a lot of people today, when they talk about the Lord, or when we try to bring up the Lord to them, they have these things that go like this. Alright, this is really deep. Y'all, y'all need to check this out. It goes like this. It comes in the ear, and it bypasses the brain, and it comes right out the mouth. And we're going to look at what some of those are tonight, but just, and it's such a good approach instead of saying, well, and let me ask you like this. What is our natural gut reaction when someone says, well, you're just intolerant or Christians are intolerant? What's, what's our natural reaction? Reactions. Defensive. Defensive. Okay. Normally, how does that manifest itself? What's that? Okay. Like when, when that reaction of defense comes, whether we are defending ourselves, something we believe, or someone we support, how does that often show itself? If we don't ask the question, we go right into defense mode. We go right into counterpunch mode. Depends on if you have black belt. Depends on, right? Okay. Often it's to, it's to respond in the same way, to say, no, I'm not intolerant. But do you see how effective this is? He says, well, what do you mean by that? Because you, you catch what he's saying. When they give a definition, which most people can't give a definition of what intolerance is. True intolerance is hundreds of years ago intolerance, Joseph Stalin t- intolerance, which says, if you don't agree with me, I want to kill you and burn your farm. Do Christians hold that today? No. But what they're thinking is what Greg explained, that if we simply believe there is truth, period, then we're saying not everybody's right. Now, can we still love people if they believe they're wrong? We love them, yes, and we try to bring them the truth. But many people think if we say something is wrong, then therefore we're being intolerant. But just to ask him. Very conversation, you know, what do you mean by that? So here's, we're going to look at two texts that's going to try to frame our uh, discussion tonight. The first is Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, notice the comma, this is the type of philosophy and empty deceit Paul's talking about. According to what tradition? Human According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Human tradition, it's all about us. The elemental spirits of the world, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the pride, or the, um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These do not come from the Father, but are from the world. He concludes it to say that the world is passing away and it's lust, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So our other text here uh, is Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. This is Jesus. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? So, because of this, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So we're going to look at some fallacies, and a fallacy would simply be a wrong system of belief, a wrong thinking pattern that people often have and even charge us um, with having. Um, This is from Chronicles of Narnia. For those of you who have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, 
This is Professor Diggory Kirk, and he's the, the old professor there. In the background here is Lucy. They're playing a game of hide-and-seek. She goes into the wardrobe, and she discovers Narnia. Well, she comes out, and she tells it to her sister and her brothers, and they go, and they see a wardrobe, and they think that she's telling a lie, but she had no past of ever telling a lie. She was the most truthful one of all the brothers and sisters. So... It became a big problem. They went to the professor in whose house they were staying, World War II, to be out of London, out of the bombing raids. And here's what he said after uh, talking to the kids. He says, why don't they teach logic at these schools? What do they teach them at these schools? Because what he's saying is that unless you have a bias against the supernatural, and you have a person that for no reason, no selfish reason, are they lying no reason why they would make up this story, then if they're a truthful person and there's no reason for selfish gain if they would make it up, why wouldn't you just believe them even if it's something that seems to be supernatural? So he's saying logically, and if you've watched the movie, Susan, the older sister, she keeps saying logically, logically, and the professor gives them a a definition of what that actually is. So this is um, a statement that's on the steps of the courthouse in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, The statement is this, freedom can only exist in the society of knowledge. Let's stop right here for just a moment and let this sink in. If you have a society um, that is fed through the TV alone, that is fed through edited sound bites, and that becomes reality, there's not really knowledge, then y'all tell me what is a society going to eventually look like who believes what they're told? or what is presented to them, go with me on this, either what they're told, totalitarian dictatorships, or what is presented to be reality. By the way, every single second of what we see on television is edited. With the sound, with the background music, with the effects to produce a certain effect in you and I. So y'all tell me, in a society to where knowledge is simply what is presented to you instead of what it actually is. What is that, what's, what's that society going to look like? Some characteristics of a world. Okay. All right. What's that? Sheepish. Sheepish, okay. All right. Maybe also incapable of actually having a rational conversation. Even if the evidence is given in a society to where knowledge is not there, people say, I don't know what to do with this evidence because I either think based upon my emotions, I either think based upon what the society tells me I should think, and so forth and so on. So let's, let's, get, let's get into it here. We're going to look at how to detect these logical fallacies, and we're going to look at 11 of them if we have time tonight, which we probably won't. But uh, here's a few tips on how to avoid them. Number one would be a tautology, all right? This is a self-evident truth. A tautology is defined as a trivial truth that does not give any new information but is offered as a false sense of agreement. The perpetrator will also often or will make a statement such as, a rose is a rose, become what you are. It is a self-evident truth, but it doesn't refute or repudiate any thesis. In short, it is a dodge offered to divert your attention or get you to agree on a point that really isn't in dispute. Well, we're just all human. 
Never thought about that before. Thank you, Einstein. When does that come up? Often it comes up if we're going through God's law. If we're talking about sin. People begin to feel conviction. They begin to feel guilt. And they throw out a logical fallacy that's kind of like a hello McFly, a duh type of statement. Well, we're all human. Well, I didn't notice any aliens walking around. Now, you don't want to say that, right? Because you'll come off cocky. But this is something that people will throw up that will help you understand what it exactly is. People throw up something that's a duh statement. They're simply trying to throw out the statement hoping that the conviction pattern will stop. Or hoping that the conversation will change to something more along the lines of football or economics as opposed to my relationship with God. Number two, this is where it gets really interesting. We can call it the ad hominem, uh, which is an attack against the person. It's an attack on you or those you admire instead of dealing with the facts. It is the ultimate act of desperation because when a person is completely out of arguments, their last resort is to attack their opponent. And if you've ever watched any debates um, politically, this usually happens when the other person is losing. Here's an example of an ad hominem. You are so stupid, your argument couldn't possibly be true. Most people don't say that. Another one would be, I figured that you couldn't possibly get it right, so I ignored your comment. Example number three, Jerry Falwell Sr. was intolerant. If you're a Christian, you are too. Pull it out of left field. And then, this is my favorite, what else could you expect from an evangelical, Bible-believing, conservative Christian? You're in a debate, you're in, let's say, a discussion over, over abortion. And you're giving facts to support your position. You're giving reasons why God's word is uh, true. And they say, well, what? You started going to that Baptist church. You're, You're an evangelical. You see, are they really addressing the issue at hand? No, they're simply saying in a roundabout way, because most people won't use example number one. Most people will not look at you and say, you're stupid, I don't care what you think, get lost, right? But they'll say things that will have a little snide comment attached to it, and that really doesn't uh, address the issue at hand. So here is the question, because often this happens, um, not very directly, but in indirect ways, to us when people say things like that. So here's the question. What effect is an ad hominem or an attack against you intended to produce? When the person levels something like that at you, what, what is the intent? To get you off the, they were losing on the facts, just to get you off the facts. Okay. All right. So busy defending yourself. What's that? So busy defending yourself, you lose track of the argument. Often it is a public admission for those who have thinking patterns that are plugged in, functioning right, of they've just lost the argument. But it can also be to try, like what you said, Michael, to try to throw you a red herring, throw you a smoke screen to get you off track. Now, we have no better example than the Lord Jesus who has attacked his person, right? I mean, his person... His character, his integrity, his messiahship was attacked all the time. And notice Jesus uh, never reacted like what we see people react on Jerry Springer. Okay? 
than often the way we see politicians act. So number three here would be the red herring. Uh, It's an irrelevant argument. A red herring is a methodology of raising an irrelevant issue that has nothing to do with the argument at hand. For example, I won't become a Christian because Christians hate homosexuals. Now, the true followers of Jesus Christ hate homosexuals. No. Another example, I won't become a Christian because there are hypocrites in the church. How many of us have heard that before? That, that's it. Now, depending on your, your, the way the Lord guides you, when you hear this, <clears throat> a lot of people in Franklin County may not use this because often this, using this first statement, I won't become a Christian because Christians hate homosexuals, aligns that person with homosexuals and we're still a fairly conservative area, especially compared to the northern part uh, of the state. But when a person says, I'm not going to give my life to Christ, I won't consider the claims of Jesus because there's hypocrisy in the church. We, we covered this about a month, month and a half ago. Does anybody remember a couple of things that we pointed out when this comes up? Concede it. Is, is this true? It's true. Concede it. And often, that takes the wind out of their sails. They're like, what? what? They, they don't know what to do. And here's, here's the interesting thing. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, there would be what? Hypocrites in the church. There will be many on that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do... And he just goes down this list of all sorts of church, ministry-ish, Christians mission-like things that people have done. So number one, we can concede the argument because it's true. And secondly, we say, you know what? Jesus said the same thing. And they're like, wait, I didn't want to agree with Jesus, you know. And we let them know that that's the case. But then number three, and this depends on, you know, how the Lord leads you, but say, why would you allow somebody else to get in the way of your relationship with God? Just because they want to bring the judgment of God on themselves and they want to be fake and be false and one day have God send them to hell, why would you want to say, because they're going to be destroyed, I will be as well? And then there's another one here. Um, The central question, you can just ask them, say, you know what, hey... That's true. Jesus said that. Why do you want to let other people, you know, get between you and God? But what does hypocrites in the local church here in Franklin County have to do with whether, notice here, whether Jesus actually rose from the dead? You see the connection there? Or the lack of connection? The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, here's the very one who said there would be hypocrites in the church. So once again, we've got to get people. It's not about the church. It's not about people in the church. It's about whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. If that happened, Christianity is true. Uh, Number four, to beg the question or circular reasoning. This is when a person offers a proposition or an argument as truth and then seeks to prove it by that same argument that is circular reasoning. Here's where we're going to kind of crucify ourselves a little bit. Example. God exists, you're talking to an atheist, God exists because he said he does in the Bible. Let's have a little time out right now. Why is that probably not the best approach to use with someone who does not believe in God? They don't believe in God, they don't believe in his word. Okay. 
Alright? They, they just don't believe it. But here, here's the question. Is God's word true? Yes. We know that's the case. But the question is, are, are we going to do as much as we can to love people where they are? The person is in a state of unbelief, and we simply come and say, you have to assume, you have to have my same set of presuppositions. God exists, His Word is true, Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Then what we're saying is, I'm not willing to do the utmost to bring you to believe that that uh, is true. So what's wrong with using this, this argument is that we're trying to prove a point by offering evidence to which they have not agreed yet. Now, there may be times to where the Lord will give you kind of a prophetic utterance. And by that, I don't necessarily mean a future reference of something that's going to happen. But just look in your, the, the eyes of your friend, the person, and say, Look, I know you may not believe this right now, but I'm telling you, as your friend, as someone who cares about you, the Bible is true, Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm begging you, please place your faith in Jesus. And that may resonate within their soul. It may be that God uses that to change them. But just coming off with this in a flippant way, said, hey, I know God exists. Why? The Bible says it does. Believe it or burn. You know? Be sanctified or chicken fried? (laughs) Turn or burn, brother. You going to take Jesus or you going to leave him? All right. What's that? I smell smoke. It's coming. You know, to, to come off like that is just often, let's put ourselves and switch around the scenario. If you and I are talking to a Muslim, their belief is that the Quran is the word of Allah, the word of God. And they are telling you, it's, it's God's word. You say, well, I, I don't believe that. Well, why do you believe that it is the Word of God? Why is the Quran right? Well, because it's the Quran. Well, why is the Quran the Word of God? Well, because it is. And if you don't believe that, you as a kafir or an infidel, you're going to burn in hell. We're just thinking, well, what would you think if you had that conversation with a Muslim? Let's talk about it. They don't know any more than you know. Okay. Otherwise, they would be able to take any type of evidence of mm-hmm. why they believe what they believe in. So your reflection on their That's a good way to rouse somebody up and entrench them in their position instead of opening them. Yeah. Yeah. But that a lot of times the same can be said for a lot of Christians. If the shoe's on the other foot, it goes back to the whole fundamental thing of do you know why you believe what you believe? Mm-hmm. The whole point of apologetics in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent point. Hence this. Hence Wednesday night since the, the first of, of the year. So I, I would, and once again, we believe God's word. That is our presupposition. That is what we can come to through reasons. But when it comes to loving people, all right, especially people who have questions, it is you and I reading things that we would normally never read, okay, exposing ourselves to certain videos, even if they're atheist videos, knowing who certain people are, so that we can understand where they're coming from, and we're doing that not because we like looking at big words and all of these things, but because we love people. Does that make sense? Because I don't know about y'all, some of this stuff can be deep, it can be almost like philosophical somewhere up here, but the reason why we try to read these things and address these subjects, like next month, 
we're going to go through two Wednesdays of Islam. Um, probably two weeks of Buddhism. Alright? We're going to do Hinduism. We're going to do Sikhism, Jainism, and Zoroastrianism. We're going to do all... If you don't even know what that is, alright, it's, it's, it's going to be fun. But here's the thing. Do most of us like to come home after... Um, let's, say, let's just say it's in the middle of the week, a Wednesday night, and it's been a rough week, and you got off at 6, 7 o'clock. Well, if you got off at 7 o'clock, you'd have to work really close to get here in time. But anyway... And you say, well, I just want to open up, you know, a textbook on world religions. We probably want to go home and eat, right? You know, turn on the TV and just not have to think. But I encourage you guys, when you come to this and when you do your study on your own, when you listen to the Reasonable Faith podcast on the way to work, you are doing that because you love people. And if, and we'll go to the next point after this, If we don't study apologetics for that reason, out of love for God and love for people, number one, we're either going to be very arrogant because we've got all this knowledge, okay? Or there's going to be a divide and the nerds are going to study it. I don't mean this in a funny way. The, 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 the nerd, the nerds will study it because it's somewhat intellectual and you're more effective, you're more people. People are just going to veer away saying, I don't want that at all. But what the Lord wants us to do, I believe, is to learn this to love people. We all on the same page? Okay? So that's why we plow through some of this stuff. Number five, a non sequitur, which is an assumption of fact. Uh, in other words, it's a conclusion that doesn't follow the premises. Now, these examples right here are not supposed to make sense because a non sequitur is not supposed to make sense. So here's what it is. Um, example, we know why it rained today because I washed my car. You say that doesn't make sense. Exactly. All right. Number two, I don't care what you say. We don't need any more bookshelves. As long as the carpets are clean, we are fine. See, that sounds like... Never mind. I can say it. Number three, if you do not buy this type of pet food, you do not, Barry Helene, you do not love your pet and you are a bad owner. Okay? And number four, so what's with all these random scenarios? Here, here's, here's where rubber meets the road. The Bible has errors. Therefore, Christianity isn't true and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You know what most folks would do in churches? Is react and they would say, if the Bible has errors, Christianity isn't true and Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Anybody remember one of the things that we have been able to learn, I hope, in this course, about even if the Bible's not even reliable... What can we use to establish that Jesus rose from the dead? What other data? What other evidence? What's that? Yep, Josephus, other first century writers who were not Christians. Or the sheer martyrdom of his followers. Okay. That these pagan Romans record that these Jewish guys had a radical change and now they're willing to die for this Jewish carpenter who they claim rose from the dead. See, here's the thing. We believe here that God's Word is true. It is inspired by God. It is without error. It is the very Word of God. But here's the thing. Often people will want to get you distracted 
by picking a verse out of context and saying the Bible's not true because this verse contradicts this verse. You know what I've come to do? So you know what? That's really interesting. I had a guy send me a, a, a link um, saying, have you ever heard of the skeptic's Bible before? And they just go through and they try to pick apart the Bible. And here's the thing. Even if that's right, which it's not, even if it's right, it doesn't disprove the fact of the resurrection because you can establish the resurrection with not even having to appeal to biblical authority. So, the fact that the Bible has errors, if they think that, say, you know what? I'll even concede that to you for the sake of argument. But let's talk about the evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And here's how you come through it through the back door. If you can establish that the most rational response to all of the data from Josephus and these pagan authors, these pagan historians, if the most logical explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, then let's ask this question. What did this guy who rose from the dead think about the Bible? It is the very word of God. So we can establish the resurrection through non-biblical sources and then if the resurrection happened, then he's not just a man, he's God in the flesh. And what did this guy think about it? He thinks it all, it's all true. So if he called his resurrection and he actually rose from the dead, then I think it's pretty rational and pretty safe to believe what he believed about the Bible, which it is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. So once again, don't ever let anybody pigeonhole you, because that's what they try to do all the time. Uh, number six. There's a little bit. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And nobody can contradict that. No, you weren't changed. You're like, actually, I was. And my family can bear witness as well. So, great, great point. Number six is an appeal to unqualified authority, and we get this all the time in politics, uh, celebrity endorsements. And there's a picture of Mr. Brad Pitt. Um, here's a question. Does it matter for whom that celebrity is going to vote? Low information voters, right? Yep, yep, you're right. It's like, wow, Brad Pitt's voting for so-and-so. I want to be, I, he's awesome. I want, you know, it's like that. I'm not going to get off on that. Here's the thing. Just because a famous sports figure holds a certain position, does that necessarily mean that they are an authority on the subject. Apparently in North Korea. <laughs> okay. In North Korea. Right, right. Here, here's, and this is, this is almost a comical example, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here because um, we're almost out of time like happens to us every week. But when somebody comes to you and they may be a very popular person, they may be a person even in authority, and they say, for example, and we'll use this throughout, Christianity is not true. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Questions. Do you have a degree? Now, once again, God can work in anybody's life. We're not saying God works in the degreed people and he doesn't with us. But if somebody's going to come and tell you definitively that Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the Bible is full of errors and so forth and so on, number one, say, okay, which school did you get your degree in New Testament and Old Testament text criticism from? Where did you get your degree in historiography from? What was the subject of your dissertation by which you studied the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic to come to that position that you believe that the Bible is false? Most people who say this stuff, 
they don't even have the authority to be able to say that, you see. If somebody wants to come and tell me that the Bible is, is this and this is that, you know, say, tell me where you actually study the text. And just because somebody has a PhD, let's say somebody has a PhD in microbiology, does that qualify them to examine these ancient sources and tell us if Jesus actually rose from the dead? So even when we see documentaries on TV and it says Dr. So-and-so, Professor of, that doesn't tell me what their training is. They could get a PhD in basket weaving for all I know, but yet they're standing up in front of God and the whole world saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So when I ask those questions and often when you really begin to ask those questions, hey, we say, hey, I'm not an expert and let me hear it, let me hear it. You're not, that's right, you're not an expert. So you should... Um, have some humility. Number seven is guilt by association. Guilt by association is often used alongside personal attacks. Example. Um, uh, okay, good. I'm glad somebody knew who Robert Tilton was. I was like, I don't know if it's gonna, it's gonna be a lead balloon or what. Yeah, well, that's, I guess I'm dating myself. I'm now in the, uh, older illustration crew there. Okay. Um, Robert Tilton, TV evangelist, is a crook. Therefore, All churches and Christians are crooks. Question. Is Robert Tilton a crook? If you don't know who he is, he's been convicted of... He's he's, he's the case in point, bless his heart, and I hope that he comes to the Lord and gets saved for real. Um, The quintessential TV preacher who just steals people's money and makes arguments to appeal to emotion for little ladies to send in social security checks and send them a prayer cloth and and all that. So, is that true? Yes. Does Does it follow that all churches and all Christians are crooks? No. But once again, can we concede this? That he's a crook? Yes. But at the same time, what did Jesus say? There would be Go through the same thing again. Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2, Jesus. The Bible says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. See the little guilt of association? You know, I, I hope in, in Rocky Mountain Baptist Church that God can give us so many lost friends that people would see us around town at Applebee's or wherever it may be. Now, hopefully it's not you or us as a church, the one there knocking them down. All right, don't want to be that. But to be out with lost people so that people see us with lost people. And notice what happened to Jesus. He was persecuted because of it. Hey, if somebody is out and they see me with some, some lost guys... Just just know, Jesus was a friend to sinners, and I'm trying in this year to become a better friend. Friend, not just not just once in a while, hey, get saved, hey, come to church, to be a friend with people who don't know Jesus Christ. And I encourage every single one of you to do the same thing. So number eight is equivocation, which means shifting the definitions. It's kind of like this. An example would be, somebody say this, evolution is gradual change over time. In the next sentence, they'll say, evolution is an unguided, purposeless change producing order from chaos. Now, if you just say that evolution is gradual change over time, we know there's some change. That's called microevolution. That's observable. But we never see something going from the goo to the zoo to you. Right? 
That that's just not there. And that's what they mean when they say evolution, but sometimes they'll present it as just a little change here, a little change there. You know, we see dogs and they change, and you know, you've got these little parakeets and they change a little bit, but that doesn't prove that they all had the same ancestor that was a one-celled amoeba. So when somebody gives you a definition of, for example, Darwinianism, or Darwinism, rather, or evolution, say, okay, exactly what are you talking about? Because they'll ask you, do you believe in evolution? And what would be a good response? Remember Greg Kukul question. What do you mean by evolution? See, because if we automatically say no, in other words, we're not even saying that you can get dogs and produce different types of dogs, but they're still what? A dog. Except for if you had like a you know four foot chihuahua, that would be a fearsome predator, you know, that lions would run from. I mean, just imagine that and give you bad dreams, okay? But uh, but if you say automatically no, they're going to think, well, you don't even believe what we can observe scientifically. But if you say, what do you mean by that? And they say this, an unguided, purposeless change producing order from chaos. We're like, no, because that doesn't even make sense, right? And um, we'll do one more, and then we'll we'll quit. Um, this is especially uh, powerful for students. They get this a lot by way of peer pressure, middle school, high school, college even. It's ad populum, which is an appeal to popularity. Um, the majority of people today, here's the way it goes, majority of people today believe there is more than one way to heaven, so you should as well. Another way that it's given. So you're saying that Everything and everyone other than Jesus is insufficient to get to heaven? Wow. And they'll kind of do one of these. A little eyebrow raising. What's the argument here? You're the odd man out. You're the odd woman out. Question. Does that have anything to do with the truth? You could have every single person on planet earth right now just a dark blanket of atheism, but that's still not going to change whether God actually exists, right? Every single one. Let's say we had a unanimous worldwide decision that milk that is left out in the sun for three straight months during the summer is not going to harm you when you drink it. Still going to tear you up, right? Subjective opinion or subjective collective opinion is not going to change reality, right? We have to conform ourselves to reality, and that is that is the so Lord I Jesus guess Christ. Would be like a form of, you know, the whole like if that's true for you, then that's fine because you're making your truth dependent on whether the majority believes it or not. But it doesn't matter, like you said, if the whole world believes one thing that's false, it doesn't make it true. It still is false. Mm-hmm. So would that be another way to? Yeah, it would be be another example of postmodernism, which says that there's really no truth. It's just individuals and cultures determine what is true. But I like where the scripture says, let God be true and every man a what? Liar. And that's where we're going to stop tonight. Um, We just don't have enough time to unpack the rest of it. But we will come back next week. And uh, next week we're going to go through eight questions, eight ways to deal with people when you actually get in the conversation. It's going to be probably one of the most helpful, I hope, one of the most helpful lessons that we will do. Because if you're like me, you can get into a conversation and you're getting hit with all of these 
these smoke screens and all of these fallacies. Well, how do you actually navigate through that while, number one, loving the person but still staying on task, a.k.a. not telling them enough with your dumb fallacies but still remaining on task?